this episode of American Thought Leaders. We're living in America now where the largest threat, the most grave threat to our lives and liberties come not from a foreign country, but from our own government. I sat down with Claremont Institute fellow David Riaboy to discuss the broader impact that progressive ideology is having on America. We're seeing the necessary consequence of radical left thought over the last 50 years really in full bloom. We explore a host of topics, from the notion of conspiracy theory to the concept of justice to the surprising pitfalls of urban planning. The conservative movement needs to sit down and address what urbanism looks like in a way that is not free market, post-Cold War, fundamentalist, libertarian. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. David Raboy, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Great to be here. David I recently did a quick interview here uh, at the National Conservatism Conference with uh, Senator Rick Scott. We talked about him being in New York on 9-11. We were doing the recording on 9-11. And immediately, I was frankly surprised to see in my feed that someone was talking about it being an inside job. You have some thoughts about 9-11, quote-unquote, conspiracy theories. Tell me what you're thinking. I was a New Yorker at that time. I lived through 9-11. I was right there. At first, I used to get very angry about it. I didn't understand how people could be conspiracy theorists. And then over the years, especially in the last couple of years, it uh, it dawned on me why, and a a few thoughts occurred. One was that we're living in a place now, an America now, where the most grave threat to our lives and liberties come not from a foreign country, but from our own government, whether it be in terms of, uh, of persecution of, uh, of, of political enemies, um, whether it be draconian nonsense in regards to COVID and all this, what they, wa- what they want for us in terms of uh, Green New Deal and all this stuff. It's pretty uncontroversial to say that the essentially what we saw the other night with uh, with Joe Biden's speech, our own leaders hate us more than any foreign country hates us. Okay, so you've got that on one hand, that realization, and then on the other, you start to think, well, if they could do something terrible, then maybe they did. I think that's necessarily a a mistake. It's a it's an analysis mistake, where you see that the people who I hate the most could do this horrible thing, and in fact, they did do it, only because they're bad, and that's what bad people do. And we saw that, I mean, the best example for that was Trump-Russia for the last several years, which is you had an entire credentialed class of Russia experts all come together and say, you know what, we hate Trump and we hate Putin, therefore these two things have to go together, and and there is nothing that's going to prevent us from imagining all kinds of nefarious dealings um, between, between these two. Um, so you have that on one hand, and, uh, and then on the other, the conspiracy temptation at the end of the day is a security blanket. And it's a security blanket that, that says, you know, there is some order to the world. Our intelligence services, or their intelligence services, or whoever, they're ultra competent. Our enemies are 12 feet tall, and anything they set out to do, they can achieve. They can manipulate every little, you know, possible thing. Um, 
that may be terrifying superficially, but at the end of the day, it is a security blanket because it presumes that there is order in the world. And it presumes that if we just fix and we just get rid of the bad guys and we replace them with good guys, the whole thing will be fixed. And this is the QAnon uh, phenomenon in many respects. And uh, my message is, I think, that the government class, our elite class, Yes, they hate us. No, they're not good at their jobs. And no one is coming to save you. There's not necessarily an order to, to the madness that can be explained by, um, you know, by a vast conspiracy theory. Now, I think there are definitely conspiracies, for sure. But they operate on a smaller level. When you have one conspiracy theory that explains everything, it is more than likely not true and more than likely speaking to a deep need in the believer. I want to talk about the hate you're describing, like, i.e., they, the, the elite class hates us. I've heard people say that, and I've also heard people say, no, this is just a political ploy. It's, uh, there, there, there isn't deep emotion involved here. This is just simply a power play and marginalization of the political group that, that, that we're not aligned with. How do you see that? I think there's definitely hate uh, from the point of view of the elites, that the hate that the elites have of most of the country. Um, at this point, it's very obvious. Twitter has been amazing for this because you see it raw and unvarnished. I mean, heck, you can now see it on broadcast TV. You see it on The View every night or every day. You see it on, on MSNBC and CNN all the time. There is a palatable uh, uh, amount of contempt that these people have for their, for their political enemies. All of these people, as, as a few folks have said, all of these people at the end of the day, the left, let's say the mainstream left, has all bought into the, Marcuse, the old Marcuse idea of rep repressive tolerance, which is that in the service of our ideology, they're all fascists, we don't allow fascists to speak, and, you know, once you've defined half the country as fascist and once you've said half the country ha then has no right to speak and these opinions are not legitimate uh, uh, political disagreements and speech is violence, by the way, then you sort of have a moral obligation or not a moral but an intellectual obligation, ideological obligation to follow through on this stuff. And that's what we're seeing. Um, we're seeing the necessary consequence of... Um, let's say, radical left thought over the last 50 years, really in, in full bloom. And, um, and really, it's terrifying, because I always say, if they believe 50% of what they say, we're in a lot of trouble as a society. To me, it strikes me that there's these political operatives. Like someone wrote President Biden's speech. He didn't write that. I mean, I'm pretty sure, right? Someone wrote that. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Um, in fact, I think he was backpedaling on it the next day. And so there's a kind of a political motivation to all of this that is, you're saying, it, you, you, you think that hate and contempt are the primary motivators here? Is that, do I understand that right? Uh, no, I think that's the flowering of 
the, the, the necessary, it's the flowering, the necessary consequence of their ideology. I mean, they've been put into a box or they've put themselves into a box where they say that, you know, we are fascists and punch a Nazi. And, you know, of course, they're the ones who decide who is the Nazi. They're the ones who decide who's the fascist on an ever-shifting scale. And so we're definitely we're in a cold civil war. I believe personally that the country is coming apart in an irreparable way and that we are at the end of kind of this American experience. Um, how that is going to take shape in the future is, is an open question. But I don't think we can come back from this. I don't think an election or anything like that can come back from this because the basis of our disagreement, I think, is a, is a disagreement on the concept of justice. And every civilization needs to agree at the, base, at the very basic level what is justice. And justice as the West has traditionally understood it since the Enlightenment is equal justice. You and I, um, we may be from different backgrounds, we may commit um, a crime. Our different backgrounds have no bearing on whether or on our guilt. For half the country now, I mean, we say that that's, that's right and proper. And in fact, that's really the only way to run a civilized country that is fair for all the people. Um, the left has rejected that and they, and, and in favor of group rights and in favor of, uh, of group conceptions of social justice. So it really turns that on its head. And, and now this particular understanding of justice has infected every bit of society. There's so many examples every day that, uh, that, that pop up to really illustrate this, you know, to the point where we just kind of shrug our shoulders and we say, oh, you know, it's a Trump supporter um, who's, uh, who's facing a jury in Washington, D.C., or a conservative. Well, yeah, that person isn't, obviously isn't going to get a fair trial. And we say it like it's not a big deal, but in fact, it is a big deal because the basis of our country and our civilization is that Yes, that person should be able to get a fair shake because the people should decide on things that are not um, uh, related to clan or race or politics or religion or whatever. And uh, so I think once that's eroded, you don't just get it back. You have to suffer the consequences of that erosion. I don't really actually think it's half the country that believes in this alternate model of justice. I think it's a much smaller but very uh, fervent group. Um, that, and then there's some portion of the people that just kind of go along to get along, right? What do, what do you think? You're probably right. Um, the number of people who uh, think about it in these terms is probably very, very small. Um, but, but that said, I mean, I think it's a larger group than you may think, not explicitly endorsing a two-tier justice system, but who kind of de facto say, okay, I mean, we, we tried in this country, we tried very hard explicitly to overcome these types of prejudices when it came to different ethnic groups. And we understood that it is something that should be overcome. It's like... If you are of a certain race, you are allowed to say something where someone 
you know, uh, of, of another race cannot say the same word, even if, you, you know, even if kind of all things are equal. Some school district, I think in Michigan or somewhere, they said, you know what, or Minnesota, you know what, when, when we cut our budgets, we're going to cut the white teachers first. I mean, this would have been crazy, unfathomable not long ago, but, but here we are. And as you said, it's so ingrained in our elites and in the elite mentality that through the elites, it infects many other things. And it does so through social media and journalism and all that stuff. Um, but I'm not sure how you defeat this particular point of view with the elites other than to appeal to the folks who have this kind of old-fashioned, um, very American conception of equal justice to like, say, no, this is an important thing that we need to hold on to. Speaking of, you know, conspiracy theories, that this people pointed to this conspiracy theory that, you know, the academy, that all these institutions are being taken over by the left. And people say, no, these are, you know, there's just some students, they'll grow out of it. There's no big, there's no big plan. Do you think there was a big plan to have people with this ideology specifically be able to work together to grab the levers of power? Well, yes and no. Um, I don't think that 50 years ago they would have looked around and said, you know what, they're talking about weird gender stuff and we're, at some point we'll get to the point where we'll talk about weird gender stuff and that's good and that's what we want. I, I don't think it works that way. I think that the left has been, it's set up, to, it's established to be a self-looking ice cream cone, a self-radicalizing ice cream cone over the years. 50 or 60, 70 years ago when, when, when they were first um, encountering some of these institutions with the very explicit um, uh, idea of subverting them and taking them over, they didn't know the result, but they knew pr approximately the form that it would take um, because they were smart people. So explain to me the self-radicalizing ice cream cone. It's in the nature of progressivism. It's in the, it's in the word. It's progress, it's not a destination. It is always the search for more expansive rights, for more expansive um, understandings of uh, expression, for breaking down more barriers. Every couple of years, you will encounter folks who used to be on the left, even the far left, who say, whoa, what are you like I, this you know this is this is uh this is this is completely crazy and they will say yes of course it's the natural result of moving towards an egalitarian society i mean even barack obama used to say you know i mean what does that mean the arc of justice the the arc of history is long but it bends towards justice well we don't know what's over that rainbow but it's going to be good I mean, that has been the currency of the left. And in fact, it's been the left since the French Revolution, at the very least, which was continually radicalizing and ended up in, um, in, in a kind of very bloody way. One group killing the other group, and, and it happens in communist countries, it happened in, in the USSR or uh, under Mao. One group was not radical enough. They have to be liquidated to make room for the more radical groups. So that's, that's, uh, that's the history of the left. So a number of uh, guests on this show who, for example, lived through the Cultural Revolution in China or through the killing fields, amazingly, um, in Cambodia, have pointed out on this show that there's a lot of similarities. But what the difference is there isn't this 
large-scale killing, which seems to be characteristic of all these cultural revolutions that have happened. Um, so is it fair to, to make this comparison? I think it's very fair. I would compare the temptation and the intentions of the left in America today, and I'm including, let's say, the mainstream left and the government, to some of the worst regimes in history. I would do it. I would say the, the intention is there. However, they're a little more sophisticated and, and a little more squeamish when it comes to violence. So they don't want to get their hands dirty, so they can very easily shut off a, a financial spigot, or they could deplatform you. Um, I think for them, social media is a great opportunity to be able to regulate the thoughts and opinions of the people in society that they, that they despise. And they think that by shutting it off on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and removing from Google searches and YouTube and all this stuff, they think they're able to disappear the air in which, uh, let's say, dissent from orthodoxy uh, happens. And uh, I think they may be right about that. So at the end of the day, they don't need to throw us in camps if they take away our livelihood if they take away our bank accounts, if they take away the uh, ability for us to express ourselves and to understand ourselves, to get news, to kind of navigate the, the political and cultural space. Um, they don't need to do anything more to us uh, than that. You know, so what you're describing is a kind of, you know, you could call it communism. I think Rod Dreher calls it a soft totalitarianism. Um, you know, fascism actually comes to mind as a term because there's this corporate uh, government fusion, which it constantly we're learning more about, about how closely that works together. Um, have you ever come across, uh, I believe it was James Lindsay's term, the iron law of woke projection? Sure. Yeah, they, they accuse you of, uh, of, of doing what they're doing um, at all times. Why is this an iron law? Because it, frankly, whenever I see examples of it, I, I rarely see counterexamples, but it could be just because of my, you know, confirmation bias, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I try not to get overly psychoanalytical about some of these, uh, some of these folks, especially not ever having met um, uh, all of them. Um, I think it's different in every case. Uh, but I do think at the very base level is something that's common throughout humanity and especially common since, like, let's say the dawn of the left. Uh, we can even say since the French Revolution, which is to say people are, get so obsessed with ideology. Ideology uh, uh, takes the form that fanatical religiosity used to take in the ancient times. And... Um, they get so obsessed with the ideology that it overrides their kind of basic humanity. And we see this in terms of the, the, the trans kids issue. And I wonder, I was thinking the other day, I see Taylor Lorenz devoting her life, you know, who works at the Washington Post, kind of devoting her life to make sure that nobody knows who, uh, you know, who's performing these, you know, these horrible medical procedures on minors. 
and trying to destroy anyone who points out that, yes, it is happening. And I think, like, what could be the motivation of someone like this to do something so horrible? And then I thought, she, I'm sure, sees herself as a trans ally, and any bad reflection on her, on, on what she perceives to be as the trans community, um, uh, needs to be tamped down and needs to be squashed, regardless of, uh, you know, regardless of circumstance. So, you know, uh, if you're making an omelet, you got to break some eggs. And she, she and others on the left have just closed off their basic humanity because they're obsessed, they're ideologically fervent true believers. So I've talked to perhaps over a hundred separate people who have told me that, and these are people that would call themselves disaffected liberals, perhaps, that's the term. They've told me that roughly, right, paraphrasing, that the thing that opened their eyes, that red-pilled them, that's another term that's commonly used, is when during COVID, the Black Lives Matter uh, riots and protests are happening, and this letter is published by some, like, I think it's 1,200 health professionals that says, no, this is good and this is good and just, and this is good health policy to have people out here in the midst. For everybody else, or any other reason, it would be terrible health policy because of COVID. But because racism is a bigger health issue, these things are good and just. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, right? And just a lot of people at that moment, you know, as you were describing earlier, said, okay, whoa, there's something really, really amiss here, right? Ideology can be incredibly powerful. I think those people who you're describing, the disaffected leftists or disaffected liberals, at the end of the day, they, they had a classical liberal understanding of things which is to say an equal justice understanding of things. And you're, you know, the folks who you're talking to who were, you know, disaffected leftists or liberals, they look at that and they say, that's crazy. How can you do that? That violates the most basic law of classical liberalism, the enlightenment, all this stuff. And the answer is, you know, yeah, of course it does. And um, that's who we're dealing with. So we're here in Florida at the NatCon conference, and um, you know we had uh, Governor Ron DeSantis speak earlier, and a lot of what he spoke about was actually, in various ways, standing up to the fruits of this ideology. A lot of his popularity seems to come from him standing up to the fruits of this ideology, now, now that I think about it. Um, why is Florida so different? than many other states in the country, in your mind. And by the way, and you moved here too, by the way. Yes. I moved here before COVID. I moved here in early 2019. Um, and I was fortunate to kind of be here before. Um, and then everyone started coming. And uh, I, mean, I thought I would be alone here. But uh, so many friends came to, came to join me. And, and as I say, like, Miami has had a boom time before and has had Orlando and Tampa and, and other major cities. But this is the, really the first time in the state's history that the whole state is booming. And that is, I think, 100% a reflection of the leadership of Governor DeSantis uh, during COVID um, and, and really since. I mean, we all know what he did. 
right? And he was coming out very firmly and saying, no, let's not go crazy about this. Let's not make this country or let's not make this state a biomedical security state. Let us allow for people to live freely and really make their own decisions and not be hysterical about this. I mean, he stood up and he took so many arrows from the press, from other politicians, from activist groups, not only in the United States, but internationally. Um, and without his example, I don't think there's another state that would have come out ahead and, uh, and, and, uh, and sort of lessened their COVID restrictions and allowed people to get back to normal life the way they did after uh, Ron DeSantis um, did it in Florida. So I do think that he saved the country in that respect. I mean, he was the guy who was there, and uh, and he was the guy who was di who who did it, and um, and he was a great example. And and people don't forget it. And also, they came down here. I didn't know this until I heard from him last night that forty five percent or something, maybe forty percent of the tourism, total tourism, to the United States from abroad has been to Florida in the last year. So people from all over the world understand that what we've created here is something very special. Yeah, I mean, certainly amidst the very populated states with large, with these large cities like Miami and, and so forth, it's very, it was a very unusual approach, right? And, and it has withstood the test of time, plainly. I think that Florida is experiencing a boom which is wonderful for a number of great reasons. But there are also pitfalls because a lot of this stuff is, uh, is, is not cost-free. And, uh, for example, I am very bullish on the state of Florida. But I think that, you know, the, the leadership of the city of Miami is terrible. And uh, it, started to, it started me thinking about how we understand urbanism and how we understand citizenship and how we understand sort of ownership of space and ownership of the country. So after 2016, conservatives have kind of come to understand that, you know, Donald Trump was right about the most basic things. You know, if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. We understand now on the right, most of us out there understand that there is a finite number of immigrants both legal and illegal, that any given country can take in um, uh, without being overwhelmed with assimilation issues or changing the character of a, of, a, of a country issues, all these things. We understand on a basic level what Ron DeSantis said the other night, which is the state, the government is there to protect the, you know, the lives of its citizens. That's an important distinction. The people who live here, they've started businesses and families and all kinds of things. Okay, so we understand that when it comes to the United States of America. But our urban policy, when it comes to, let's say, the city of Miami is, okay, open the doors, you know, double the size of your metropolitan area. It's okay. The people who live here, well, it'll be fine if, even if they're priced out of their homes and their businesses and only multimillionaires can now afford to buy property or to, uh, or to live in a place. It's fine because at the end of the day, the only thing matters is 
the free market and the tax receipts that and the economic activity that's generated by the city. So it occurred to me that there is a massive disconnect here. We've come to understand one thing about the country, but we toss away all of those lessons when it comes to the city or the or the county or the or the the, the, the location. And I think the conservative movement needs to sit down and address what urbanism looks like in a way that is not kind of free market, post-Cold War, fundamentalist, libertarian, free-for-all, you know, Walgreens and Starbucks and Orange Theory um, lining the streets of every city. And um, I think the left has a very good point when it comes to gentrification. Um, I've seen it. It's real. And it's a mixed bag. It's good and bad. But for the right, uh, the right has, has, for the last several decades, refused to deal with the bad. It's just said, you know what, creative destruction is fine. You know, it doesn't matter that all of these old businesses are, are you know, can no longer afford to, um, to operate. It doesn't matter that this once Cuban or Italian neighborhood is now... Um, full of dot-comers and has its character has completely changed and and in fact the people who used to live there got priced out they're now living a hundred miles away and in, in the middle of the swamp that's okay because it's still you know Miami it's still um, uh, it's it's still wonderful so we have to recalibrate our idea of what urbanism is about what city policy city planning is and, um, and I would love to see Miami avoid that fate because I see it happening. I saw it happening in San Francisco and New York and Washington, D.C. and in Austin, places where I've lived. And, um, and it's very important to maintain the tie to what made a place great. I think it's a very conservative value and it's something that needs to come back. So looking back at woke ideology, which is really what we've been talking about earlier, right? It has this huge, what I would call, antipathy towards history and tradition. It believes that these things are just power plays and it needs to construct its own variants to sort of justify itself because that's just how things work, right? And it just strikes me that there seems to be a parallel between that approach and what you're describing as perhaps happening in the cities, I don't know. I mean, I tend to look at the uh, deficiencies of folks on the right um, maybe before I look at them on the left, because I, I think that uh, for people who are, let's say, Republican legislators, there's no excuse to do, you know, horrible self-destructive things. But in regards to, to Miami, the mayor, Suarez, look, I mean, I think he's a run-of-the-mill, craven materialist. His entire pitch for the city of Miami and his in entire understanding of the city of Miami is an empty vessel where you can do commerce. I mean, that's nice and everything. I believe in the free market as well, but the city is more than that. And if you can't understand that, I, I don't think you have any business running a big city. At least, I mean, certainly not a, a big city. And I'll say this for the left. For the left, they understand. For as bad as they are, as crazy as they are when it comes to urban policy, they at least understand that, you know what, this neighborhood, it's tied to the people who live here. 
And um, I think that's better than a rootless, materialist point of view that just raises neighborhoods and, um, and prices people out of, uh, of, of, of these cities. So we need a third way, because really neither of these approaches is is uh, is is working. It seems like our you know city architecture, frankly architecture in all sorts of places, and 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 design and so forth, it's all kind of I guess zeroed in on this minimalist type approach, right? Where I don't want to know if I want to say IKEA, but <laughs> but but it's almost like the default design of most things is the minimal the minimalist way right as opposed to something that is a, a, a lot more work and has some very distinctive style or tradition or culture contained within so i'm going to speak in defense of ikea and minimalism for a moment not because i love it but because i do think that it is a an advance on what was prior uh, you know on on what came before it wasn't beautiful, artisanal, handmade, you know, stucky wood furniture replaced by Ikea. It was also mass-produced, ugly, heavy, ornate, cheap stuff that was produced. So we, ha- we had a couple different, we had many different aesthetic collapses before we got to Ikea. And I'll say this for Ikea, like at the end of the day, Something clean and minimalist is better than something that looks like garbage. Now, yes, I agree, we should try to get back to the, to the place where people don't have to spend um, you know, $10,000 to buy a, a, a kitchen table for it to be a thing of beauty and kind of handmade and with a history and heirloom you know, type stuff. I mean, for, for a lot of people, that kind of thing is out of reach. And, um, and I would rather give people a functional cheap thing that is eh, okay than to give people a really ugly thing that is disposable and horrible. So, so what's happened? You know, what's happened? You said it, it's better to have the minimalist than the ugly prefab. <laughs> but 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 what what happened to um yeah i mean i think it's a complicated case and it's different probably across different you know uh, architecture and film and art and music and, and literature it's different across across all of these um but i think at the basic level is the thing that i talked about in my speech is that we have collapsed the distinction between childish things and adult things in terms of culture. And what I mean by that is we had this assumption that children could take things that were very simple because they did not have the experience, they did not have, you know, nursery rhyme is a great example. Here is a life lesson, here is something that is memorable, and the melody of a nursery rhyme is something that a kid can sing. It, you, you don't need perfect pitch to sing Mary Had a Little Lamb. We had an assumption that as we would get older, our tastes and let's say our, our experience being exposed to cultural things would deepen uh, our taste 
make it more sophisticated and by necessity more abstract. We had young adult fiction. We, 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 we used to give kids, you know, recordings of symphonies to, to, um, to listen to because we had an expectation that this is what you needed to do to be a well-rounded person because this is how you, um, this is how you fire your own creativity. And, um, and that sort of has disappeared and we're left with a culture where everything is made now for the same basically 12, 13 year old, you know, boy. And by necessity, a superhero movie or a movie, a big budget film, um, can only be made by a large multinational corporation because it takes a hundred million dollars to make or, or, or even more. And then it, it, it crowds out the marketplace. I mean, tell me why there are no more films for adults. I mean, why is it that when you say it's an adult film, someone makes you think all of a sudden it's pornography? When in the old days, there were films that were made for adults, dealing with kind of adult subject matter and relationships and divorces and, and, and romance and things like this that for a 12-year-old kid would seem pretty boring. But we had this expectation that adults could handle boring. Adults could hand, you know, uh, that adults had the, the lo a larger, longer attention span than, you know, 12-year-old kids. Now, we've come to the point where adults don't. And I think that makes us very poor as a, um, as a civilization. We've talked about a few different things today. One of them is what you describe as being in a cold civil war with different warring cultures. <laughs> you know, or, or conceptions of justice, to be more specific, right? So we have that. Then we have, you're, we're, you're kind of describing a, a world, like you said, that you don't think we can go back to what was before. And I think COVID sort of sealed that. I agree with you, but maybe with a caveat. We do have an opportunity now to go back. Maybe not to go back, but to take some positive steps. Now, when it comes to politics, yes, it's very hard. What are we going to do? Um, is it impossible to turn back the clock? It is. But that said, when it comes to culture, um, I mean, film is a great example. There's more than 100 years of cinema history. Let's get to watching. You know, there's no reason why you can't learn a little bit about the history of cinema and see the great films. They're all there. The, the press of a button. The same thing with music. The same thing with literature. The same thing with great art, great painting. We live in an, in an era where if we wanted to, you know, I mean, I do this in my own home. I see artwork that I really love and I have it printed up on canvas and I hang it in my house. Um, up until now, that was impossible to do. Come on now, it's freedom calling. Come on over and find yourself.